Matthew 17, verse 22. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? He asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, babe. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you have done such amazing things for us. You were the lamb slain for our salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. You are the king who reigns and who is making right all that is wrong in the world. And this morning, we are liberated as your children. We are free. We are no longer constrained by the pressures of religion and social status and the fear of men. And yet that freedom is given to us to liberate others who are still imprisoned. And so this morning, would you meet with us by the Spirit in this text? Teach us, empower us, fill us, send us, multiply us until your return. May this be a wave, God, of goodness filling the streets of San Diego with your love and your grace and your mercy and your justice. We worship you in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. You guys, it is an absolutely amazing time to be a follower of Jesus. Now, you may read and you may hear others who are lamenting the challenges of our current cultural moment, and they're fearing the loss of power and place that the church has held in our society throughout history, but for some of us, we're seeing the marginalization of the church, our loss of place and power. We are primed for revival. The church, when she is weak, is so strengthened by the grace of God and by the Holy Spirit. And so we find ourselves currently in a society where self-defined authenticity is the highest value where being your authentic self, that is the highest moral good. And if anybody tells you, uh, no, that may not actually be good for you, well, then they become the worst of the worst Satans. So this overly individualistic, inwardly turned, self-absorbed kind of culture that we're swimming in right now, we're actually not swimming in it. Humans are drowning in it. And according to Matthew and the rest of the New Testament authors, the life raft in this chaos of self-absorption is this thing that all of us are invited into. It's called the way of Jesus, practicing the way of Jesus. 
His ways were and they are to this day counterintuitive, backwards, upside down, countercultural, challenging. But his ways, they are hugely transformative for every human who chooses to follow him. Jesus' teachings, they are the pathway to true joy, to true flourishing, to what we're all trying to find in our day-in, day-out experience. So the big idea for this morning in our text in Matthew is that we here who follow Jesus, we are God's free children, liberated from sin and guilt and shame and the constraints of social pressures that are put upon us. We are liberated. We are inheritors of a kingdom come soon on earth as it is in heaven. We are free to be and do as God wills above all else. And in that freedom, God wants us to flourish. But before we actually dive into the story, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to die and rise again. This is the second time that Jesus has made his death and resurrection proclamation in the Gospel of Matthew. Let's read it again. Matthew chapter 17, verse 22. They had come together in Galilee, and he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. All right. Really important thing happening here. This proclamation sets the tone for the coming weeks and the teachings over the next few Sundays. What Matthew's doing here is he's putting a pair of glasses on his reader's eyes, on the church's eyes, and he's saying, I want all of the following teachings in the coming weeks as you travel through my gospel, as you read and learn, I want everything, I want everything to be seen through the lens of the cross and the resurrection. Why? The community that Jesus creates is cross-formed and resurrection-empowered. Let me just unpack that for just a moment. Jesus' communities are cross-formed. What that means is that followers of Jesus, we form our decisions and our behaviors on a principle of loving sacrifice for others. And then the resurrection, it empowers these self-sacrificial decisions because disciples know, we believe, that there is this immeasurable, unchanging reward that's awaiting the sacrifices that we make in this life for the sake of others. I want you to notice something here from this proclamation. The disciples, they hear their master saying, he's going to die. But for some reason, they don't hear him say, and I'm going to resurrect three days later. Like, rather than being surprised, like, I'm going to die, but three days later, I'm going to resurrect. you think the disciples would be like, did what? Resurrect? What is it? And instead, it's like they don't even hear that Jesus says he's going to resurrect three days after his crucifixion. It's because like them, we often fail to grasp how sacrifice of self or how suffering or how even death we fail to recognize how those things could ever do anything good for anyone. And it's because we fail to see the absolutely exhilarating, life-changing, empowering power of the resurrection promise. The principle of loving sacrifice of self to bring flourishing to another, guys, that is at the center of the way of Jesus. Ultimately, 
a cross-formed life is the true life that we all long for. Let me just say that one more time and let that sink in. A self-giving, cross-formed life leads to the life that we actually all long for. A life of meaning and purpose and significance and benevolence and generosity and justice. These come about by a cross-formed life. That's exactly what Jesus said. He said, for us to truly find ourselves, we must completely give ourselves. And so Jesus' ultimate sacrifice on the cross for our eternal flourishing, that is the foundation for how we, his followers, model and think about living in relationship with each other in this room, with our coworkers and our fellow students and our neighbors as we go about our week this week. And as Evan said last week so well, our culture has this malformed or this deformed definition of love. So love in our culture is based on what we find attractive or desirable in another person for what they can bring to our well-being or bring into and give to us pleasure. And so we experience feelings of elation and butterflies and excitement, this thing that we call love, whenever we get around that certain attractive other, because through them we see the opportunity, possibly, of self-promotion, self-flourishing by being in a relationship with them. And so love in our culture, more often than not, is actually a taking process based on our feelings. But love defined by the cross is seeking the best for the other as defined by Jesus, regardless of the personal cost to ourselves. So what Matthew does here is he positions, as I've said, the following teachings under this umbrella of the cross because all Christian practices and relationships are formed by this self-giving principle, formed by the cross. And what we can't forget, what we can't do is be like the disciples and immediately hear this message this morning and be grieved, oh my gosh, Cross-formed life, self-sacrifice, I'm so, oh, Christianity, ouch, I don't want to do, no, no, no. We have to hear the resurrection on the other side of our self-giving loved ones. And, oh, we have to believe that Jesus is alive. We have to believe because when we believe that this peasant carpenter crucified 2,000 years ago is living and breathing now today, it changes absolutely everything. Jesus' communities are resurrection empowered, empowered by life, by reality, by universe-transforming realities. If the cross, Park Hill, was the only thing that formed our community and our life without resurrection, without resurrection as our motivation, then with the Apostle Paul, we would have to say Christianity is dumb. Like, if there's no resurrection, self-sacrifice is ridiculous. Why would we do that? No human, including Jesus, wants to sacrifice for another just for the sake of sacrificing. Christianity is not a religion of masochism. That's a big word that just basically means self-harm. That's not what Christianity is. These sacrifices that we make for others, they lead to abundance. And the self-denials that we so fear, they ultimately lead to a fullness of joy for ourselves and those that we have given to. It's absolutely backwards, upside down, counterintuitive, so challenging, but totally transforming. And so the resurrection, the historical fact 
that death results in new life motivates followers of Jesus to gladly give up what the world says we should clamor after, to gladly give up what our flesh demands, because we know and believe with every fabric of our being that something greater results, something more profound is given by our temporary loss. I just want to say something. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, or you're just now kind of starting to check out this whole Jesus thing and you're brought here by a friend, we want to welcome you. Thank you for joining us. I want to personally commend you for your courage and your curiosity. I remember 20 years ago what it was like the first time I ever stepped foot in a church, and it was terrifying. So welcome. God bless you. Thank you for checking this out and wondering. But if you are curious, what is this whole Jesus thing? What is this whole church thing? This is it, the resurrection. We believe God became a human who died and ultimately rose from the dead. He defeated death by resurrection. And so following Jesus is more than just adopting a nice religion. Following Jesus is more than subscribing to a new moral code and becoming a better person. To follow Jesus means that we are surrendering to a living, breathing, active creator of all things who is now working to bring restoration into every atom of the universe including you, as you investigate who he was, what he did, and what he's doing now. And the resurrection of Jesus changes everything about reality as we know it. Death is not the end. All that is wrong is being made right. And Jesus is inviting all humans to enter his kingdom, not by our efforts, but by his wonderful, loving grace. So once we've surrendered to him, he takes over and reshapes our lives. And he begins to reshape the world through you, through me, through us together. And the teachings of Jesus, framed by the cross and then fueled by the resurrection, they remind us this morning that we have been freed from this world. But we haven't been freed from this world to flee from it and escape it. We have been freed from this world to go into it and serve it with this self-sacrificial love. Just as Jesus died and rose for our sake, the church does not exist for her own sake, but for those not yet following him. Christians find their greatest joy and meaning by sacrificially serving the joy and well-being of the other. How challenging is that? We root our joy and we root our meaning by sacrificially, I can't talk this morning, sacrificially serving the joy and the well-being of the other. There you have it. So after now, Jesus lays out this umbrella, talking about his death and resurrection. Matthew immediately moves into this Christian story uh, about freedom. This weird story, actually, as we'll see. So the cross and the resurrection sets us free, but what does that freedom look like practically? That's the big question that we want to ask this morning and try to answer. What does it mean for for followers of Jesus in San Diego to live as free children in our city? Like it has all kinds of that, the answers to that question has all sorts of implications for how we're going to interact with our families, how we're going to relate to our friends, uh, uh, how, if we're free, how are we going to relate to people that we completely disagree with? How, how, how are we going to talk about politics and entertainment? How are we going to use alcohol if we're completely free? How are we going to use our money? 
What does it mean for us to be free? Let's dive in and look at this very unique story. This is the, Matthew's the only one that gives us this story. The other gospel authors don't. Verse 24, let's read it again. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? All right, the gauntlet is being laid down for Jesus again in this story. All God-fearing Jews who wanted to stand in solidarity with their God and stand in solidarity with their people throughout history, they would pay this half shekel in the Hebrew, two drachma, two drachma tax to the temple established in the days of Moses. And to not pay this tax essentially was to say, I malign the temple in which Yahweh, the creator of the universe, dwells. It was a big deal. Not paying the the two drachma tax that Jesus is being asked about here was the equivalent of just kind of snubbing God and snubbing your people and snubbing their history. It was a big deal. So these collectors, they had probably heard stories about Jesus that were terribly offensive to them. I'm sure that they had heard that Jesus was claiming to be greater than the temple itself. That would have horrified them. Some people they'd heard and this was false, but people were accusing Jesus of reworking the ancient Mosaic law. And this Jesus character was leading people astray from the code that their people had followed for centuries. And so Jesus was dangerous. So these collectors come and they're testing the waters to see what he's going to do with this particular religious and social mandate. It was required on all sorts of levels. And then there's Peter, quick on the draw, never aims. He's going to answer for Jesus as quickly as possible. So they come, they ask, hey, does your rabbi pay these taxes? Peter, without even a thought, he wants to be on the right side of the debate. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to, you know, rock the boat too much. Of course he does. Of course he does. Jesus would only do what is right and good and true. (laughs) But what Jesus, or excuse me, what Peter fails to do is he fails to think very carefully about why Jesus would either pay this tax or not pay this tax. And as always, what Jesus is going to do here is he's going to use this situation to open up his disciples' eyes to the nuanced and the surprising ways of the kingdom of God. So when Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? He asked. Now he's, he's going to draw Simon Peter out here. And I love that about Jesus. I actually love that about Christianity and following the way of Jesus. Jesus always wants us to slow down and to think deeply about things. To not come up with our quick black and white, easy peasy answers. Life is too nuanced, too complex. And so Jesus asks this question of Peter to get him to begin to think, why would we pay this tax? Why would we not pay this tax? What would be right and proper and true and good actually in this situation? Jesus asks Peter. Verse 25, from whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes, from their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. I I always envision this scene with Peter kind of having a little bit of sweat coming up on his brow here. Jesus asks the question. Peter's like, uh, uh, he knows that Jesus can be tricky in the way that he asks questions. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him, or Peter said to him. Jesus's line of question goes like this. Those in the highest authority, they don't take from the ones they support and love the most. In other words, kings don't tax their kids, they tax the conquered subjects of their kingdom, right? Pretty simple. 
And so what we want to do here is we want to slow down because this is a really huge moment and it's a really huge proclamation that Jesus is making. If we remember back in chapter 16, there was this profound revelation given to Peter. Jesus came and he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter was the only one who said, you're the son of God. The spirit literally revealed to Peter that Jesus was God's child, his son. The temple in this scenario was the physical representation of God with humans. So in other words, the tax was being paid to support the work and representation of the ultimate king of the universe, God himself, Yahweh. The parallel that Jesus is drawing here with this little Q&A session with, with Peter, it's very clear. He's saying, Peter, the spirit revealed to you my identity as God's child. The spirit has shown you that I am God's son. And because God is the ultimate king and I am the king's kid, well, that means that I'm exempt from paying this tax. Is everybody, how, everybody following with that? We've all got that straightforward logic. What's amazing too is that Jesus' summary actually includes Peter and his disciples. You'll know it was plural. The children are exempt. And this is why. We are adopted into the family because of Jesus. We are God the King's kids. And so we too, we are free from the religious and the political and the social requirements of this world because of our sonship, because of our daughtership. And so what does that mean for us? Does that mean that we don't have to pay our taxes anymore? Does that mean that we no longer need to submit ourselves to religious observances? And my answer to that is yes and no. Everything for us in this room this morning boils down to using our freedom for the sake of others. We live into a cross-shaped, resurrection-empowered freedom. And so I want us to look at how Jesus handles this situation because there's a lot to be chewed on here and learned as we are following him in this. Look at his answer. Verse 27 of Matthew 17. But so that we may not cause offense. Go to the lake. Things get really weird here for some reason. Go to the lake, throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you're going to find a two drachma or a four drachma coin. I mean, we got like a fish ATM thing happening here. It's very strange. So think, just track with me here. We're going to get into the, the takeaways from this weird story now, okay? There's a number of ways that Jesus could have answered these collectors when they came to him saying, do you pay the tax? Because he was free, he could have answered in a number of ways. Number one, because he was free, he could have, and, and maybe, maybe, yeah, he could have answered this way, as an angry libertarian of his day. And he could have commanded his followers, he could have said, you know what, we need to quit, we need to quit giving to these corrupt systems with our hard-earned money. We're free, we don't need to do this. Jesus could have given a kind of a stick it to the man rally cry, but he didn't. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand here. There were times where Jesus publicly, vocally challenged the status quo without restraint in terribly offensive ways. Jesus ultimately was crucified by the Roman Empire as a seditious traitor. That's why they crucified him. 
But even in his confrontations with the religious and with the political, Jesus never had a prideful, angsty, angry, libertarian, stick-it-to-the-man attitude. He always had tones of love for his enemies. Second, second way that he could have answered because he was free, he could have answered with complete pride. He could have said, you know what? We're above this. We're children of the king. We've been freed from you and your silly taxes. Poop on you. Away from us. <laughs> Taking kind of the self-righteous, we've got it figured out. We're better than you. Let me just draw this home a little bit. We're the moral ones. We do things right. Poop on you. We don't need to do what you... Yep, he could have done that. Third, Jesus could have towed the party line. So the social and the religious system put pressure in this situation and demanded that he pay it. And Jesus could have done like Peter, just without thinking, without carefulness, bowed to the status quo, bowed to the pressure. You know, you don't want to rock the boat, and he could have just paid it. But Jesus doesn't do any of that. What Jesus always is doing, Jesus and we in his spirit are always working out the nuances of depending on God's guidance and then exercising in that moment what is most loving for others, even at our own personal cost. Jesus is thoughtful, he is careful, and he is specific in every situation in all of the gospels. Jesus never fits into any of the polarized, religious, social, or political boxes that we try to put him in. He just kicks them open with resurrection, bursts them to smithereens. And so what he does, I'm going to paraphrase a bunch here, but what he does is he tells Peter essentially, in this particular situation, Pete, in this scenario, with these collectors, in this moment, and that is the key, Every situation is unique. So he's telling Peter in this particular situation, in this setting, the best way to love these collectors, the best way to obey our Father is to limit our freedom to not pay the tax so that we don't unnecessarily offend them for the sake of their well-being. But the, I think he's also telling Peter, if we pay this tax, Pete, let's make sure that we know that we don't have to that we're free. We are free. Let's do it because if we pay this tax, it's going to make the road more smooth for these guys to truly come into God's family. Let's give it for their sake. You see how that's such a much more complex and nuanced way of thinking about how we behave and what we do and how we relate to other humans in our exercise of freedom. It's huge. And that's the big takeaway for us this morning. There are going to be times as free children of God when the loving thing to do is limit our freedom so that others might come to faith. There are also going to be times where our freedoms are to be exercised. Even if our words and our ways might offend others, because we know that ultimately our offensive words and ways possibly will help others understand the way of Jesus. In summary, we are to be sensitive in every situation to the way that our actions are going to affect others. And what that means for us, church, is that this kind of one-size-fits-all scenario doesn't play out in Christian experience. Now, the great church planter, the Apostle Paul, he totally understood this. Paul understood and lived himself and experienced himself as a free child of God. 
He could do as he pleased, lived as he pleased, but in certain settings with certain people, he limited specific freedoms for the sake of drawing others into the family of God. To the Corinthians, Paul would write, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone. Holy moly. To win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. I, to the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I have become all things to all people so that by all, all possible means, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. And you could actually put in parentheses, I do all this as a cross-formed, resurrection-empowered obedience. That's what Paul's saying. In Galatians, Paul says to them, to the church in Galatia, it is for freedom that Christ set us free. And then he says, stand firm in that. Don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of religious, political, social slavery. You're free. You are free. But then 12 verses later, he says, you, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free. But don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Cross-formed freedom. It is careful, strategic, and sometimes restricts our freedoms for the sake of others. Resurrection-empowered freedom, it is big-hearted, it is kind, it is hospitable. It is a freedom that willingly limits itself for the sake of others. And since our freedom is ultimately resurrection-empowered, we know that however we limit our freedom in whatever given moment, it is ultimately going to result in limitless joy for eternity. So what does this look like practically? Let's, let's let Jesus get into all of our business here for just a moment. What this may look like practically is passing on that second glass of wine at the restaurant, or it may actually look like not having a glass of, of wine. In a moment of sensitivity to those that are gathered around with you, trying to understand their convictions and meeting them where they are, not putting that unnecessarily point of that unnecessary point of offense before them. This might mean not spending that extra five minutes alone on the couch with your date. You could, you're free, you're liberated from all those pressures, but you're also free to limit that for the sake of her, for the sake of you, for the sake of him. This might mean that we, in any given conversation, we bite our tongue when our friend or coworker goes off on their political rant with which we completely disagree. Yes, we are totally free to stand our political ground and make our Facebook posts and do what we do in our culture. But as Christians, we may choose to limit that lest we unnecessarily hinder their movement to the king, not to our political position, but to Jesus, to Jesus. And in religious scenarios, there's a ton of them. There's a zillion of them in the church where we could be free to do whatever we want. We're free not to give. We are free not to tithe, whatever language you want to. We are free not to generously give to our churches. But we limit our budget intentionally with joy for the sake of supporting the work going on around us. 
Guys, we're free to use whatever musical style we prefer. But in church, we are laboring intentionally to, to adopt musical styles that maybe for ourselves personally won't give us like the personal feels in the moment, but somebody else of a different ethnic or a different cultural background will come in and say, whoa, this feels like home to me. That's a limitation of freedom for their sake. So think of our freedom like this. We live in a world, this world, the big globe, the earth, and all the population of humanity, and this world is our father's house. The whole kit and caboodle is our father's house. Every day, you and I are in contact with humans who have drastically different cultural backgrounds and preferences and different ethnicities and economic situations and educational levels and religious beliefs. And so we live in our father's house as his children. We are. We're totally exempt from the pressures and the standards of the complex of human systems that, that, that human systems put on us. But we're free to go out into this world and invite those people into our family. We are, we are inviting them into our family. And so the cross forms our ways and sacrificing our freedoms to make their entrance into our father's house, so to speak, metaphorically, more comfortable, making it feel more like home. Every interaction in our day in, day out lives is a moment where prayerful, spirit-led exercise of either limiting our freedom or exercising our freedom is required. And so we got to ask this question, because I know, I know it's the question I ask constantly in these situations. How do I know? Like, how do I know when to speak up and speak forth and be bold and, and if, if necessary, it offends people? How do I know when to do that? How do I know when to stand my ground? How do I know which battles most? How do I know which hill I should go up on with Jesus and battle to the, the gory death? And then which hills should I go up on and just kind of sit down with everybody and, and enjoy the view? This is a very complex question. It's a very difficult question to answer, but I think our story gives us great hope and great peace. Look at the story one last time. Verses 27. But so that we may not cause offense, Jesus says, go to the lake, throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. Again, the fish ending uh, is super unique. Matthew is the only one that gives us this story, but I think it's super profound, and this is why. Today, you're going to face situations, relationships, opportunities where you're going to have to ask, how should I behave in this situation? What choice should I make? What personal desire should I limit for the sake of the other? What personal freedom should I exhibit to lead the other to Jesus, even at personal cost? How do I know what to do? And I think this little fish story, this little fish miracle here is very specific. Matthew, and I think Jesus, he wanted Peter and us to understand that God will provide what is needed supernaturally in the moment. He will provide exactly what is needed in that situation for the flourishing of all the humans involved in it. And it will come about in a surprising, supernatural way. Here's the deal. Jesus could have said, hey, John, do you have four drachma? We got to pay the temple. He could have gone about it a normal way, borrowed some cash if he, if he needed some funds. I'll get you back. I'll Venmo you, whatever. He, he could have done that. But instead, he chooses to tell Peter this weird thing, go, fi go fish. There's going to be money in the fish's mouth, the exact amount. Exact Why did Jesus do that? 
And I think Jesus really wants us to see that when we are living in our present freedoms, limiting and exercising them, if we are in that obedient space with him, doing what he tells us to do, no matter how surprising, how strange, how off it may be, pay the temple tax, Jesus says, okay, go fishing. We're gonna, Peter could have been like, what are you talking about? No, he obeyed, and exactly what was needed was given in that moment. God will provide the exact wisdom, the exact words, the exact amount of silence, the prudence, the discernment needed for that specific situation. He's going to take care of it. And for us, the takeaway, the call is to listen to his words, to trust him and obey him in every single moment because the perfect amount of whatever we need is gonna be there. What that boils down to for us then, as we're sent out into our city this week, is that we live in that intimate contact with Jesus throughout our days, in every space that we go into, everywhere we are, whoever we are with. I've been doing this thing lately for a number of months. Game of minutes, it's called a number of different things. But literally, I've been trying to envision Jesus being with me wherever I go. So like right now, like I'm just envisioning Jesus. He's just standing here with me and he's like looking at you guys, loving you guys, and he's speaking to me and he's speaking to, he's just, that's just envisioning that. When you go to grab your cup of coffee, imagine Jesus is standing in the back of the line. Like what does he want to say to the barista? What's he saying to you as you're talking to the barista? Uh, When you're in the car and you're driving, imagine Jesus sitting in the back seat telling you, you know, not to tailgate people and you should have stopped at that stop sign. That type of thing. Just imagine Jesus constantly with you. And I know, I know it seems silly, but that is the theology that we hold, Christians. We believe that by the Spirit, Jesus is in us, with us, all around us, speaking to us in any given moment, guiding, providing, loving, leading, counseling, teaching, correcting, constantly. And so the free children of God go into this world with their king right by their side, giving them exactly what they need for the sake of the tax collectors and the politicians and the people that we don't like and the people that we do like. Jesus is there providing exactly what's needed as we walk with him in intimacy through our days. And here's the deal as we prepare to come to communion this morning. Beloved church, when we miss the mark and we forget that Jesus was sitting in the back seat with us, when we miss the mark, and we fail to serve the other. When we fall prey and we begin to kind of drown in the self-absorbed culture that we live in, in our own self-absorbed flesh that constantly is trying to rule us, when we go down that road, what Jesus provides for us is the payment of the ultimate cost on the cross. The two drachma, four drachma coin was pointing to the cross, the miraculous cost that would be paid for all humanity. In the ultimate act of self-limiting freedom, Jesus gave himself up on the cross to liberate us from all of our sin. You are free. You can do no wrong, beloved. You can do no wrong today. Live into that freedom because of Jesus' death on the cross. You are liberated from all of your shame, all of your guilt, all of your fear. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. 
He has proven to you this infinite love that while you were yet sinning, rebelling, not listening, he said, I will do what it takes to pay the cost for them so that I can be with them for all of eternity and guide them. The author of Hebrews writes, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith, keeping our eyes on Jesus. And it was because of the joy awaiting him, resurrection empowerment, that he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, cross-formed living. And now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people, and then you won't become wary and give up. That's the call to us this week, Park Hill. Let's get face-to-face with Jesus. Let's consider him daily. Let's be near him. Let's, let's rise and go into our workplaces, imagining Jesus walking right by our side, knowing that he's going to give to us in that moment exactly what is needed for any given scenario for the sake of loving others. And may we exercise and limit our freedoms for the sake of others so that their flourishing will be our source of joy as Jesus has made us free children of the King. Let me pray for us. We're going to come to the tables. Father, we exalt you this morning in our freedom and we worship you. We're so thankful that you've liberated, from, you've liberated us from our guilt and our shame and our fear. And now we can go into this world with you holding our hand, providing the providing what's needed. We don't need to go into this world concerned and having all the right answers and knowing what to say and knowing when not to say something in the moment as we listen and yield ourselves to you, Holy Spirit. You will work in the relationships that you have planted us in. And so my prayer for us as we come to communion is that no soul would leave bound this morning but that they would experience, that we would experience ourselves together this morning as holy and clean. That the burdens and the shackles of guilt and concern and anxiety and loss would just fall off in this moment. Fall off. As we come to the table, that your presence, the provision of the cross would satisfy us. It's all we need. All we need is the cross and the washing of our souls. And all we need is the hope of the resurrection to give us new life in this Sunday morning setting right here. Give us new life. And so we trust you. We yield to you. We surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen.